Hello, my friends, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Seeds and Weeds podcast. Today, we're going to be hanging out with Jim McCormick to talk about his new book, Gardening for Moths. Jim worked for the Ohio Department of Natural Resources for 31 years. He's the nature columnist for the Columbus Dispatch, and he is an avid and a very talented photographer. Alongside co-author Chelsea Godfrey, Jim has written Gardening for Moths, a book unlike any other available on the market. I cannot wait to share this interview with all of you, so let's get into it. Jim McCormick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Glad to be here, Bevan. Thank you for having me. Now, I am really excited to be talking with you about your uh, new book, Gardening for Moz. Uh, just an incredible resource you guys have put together. But before we get started, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and your background as both a botanist and a photographer? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Uh, I worked for most of my career for the uh, Ohio Department of Natural Resources, and most of that is a botanist, a field botanist. Uh, that's my background. But I've been into nature since I was a little kid, and it also, like many people, it all started with birds. And then it sort of uh, branched out from there. And now I'm, I'm really into everything. I've long been into entomology, and it started with a moth, actually, uh, 25 years ago. And then uh, now it's just, you know, I, I would call myself a natural philosopher. People call me a naturalist. I write a newspaper column in the Columbus Dispatch, and they call me a naturalist in my byline. But I've never had a job as a naturalist. Uh I'm more of a natural philosopher in the sense I really like uh, ecology. I want to see how things mesh and how they fit together. But as you well know, that all starts with plants, generally. We'll ignore the soils for now, but... Plants drive all these ecosystems, and especially moths. And then uh, on the photography side, by the way, I've long been a lecturer on the circuit, and I used to have to hunt and peck to find photographs. We're going way back now, but I just wanted my own material, basically. One, so I didn't have to wheedle them out of other people, and two, to show exactly what I wanted to show. So it started pragmatically, uh, and really for storytelling, which I believe is the highest use of a photo anyway, and became a full-blown addiction. Uh, way, I won't even tell you. It's far beyond that. <laughs> so, And now I use virtually, like Chelsea and I provided 99% more than that, probably of the photos in that book, of which are 600. So it's paying dividends now to have done all this. Absolutely. Now, like you mentioned, Chelsea, she's the co-author of the book. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to join us here today. But could you tell us a little bit about how you guys got connected and the experience that you had working on this book together? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted a partner on it. It, it was a ton of work, uh, but I, I wanted a partner. And Chelsea came to a photo workshop, a macro photo workshop that I taught. And that's how I met her. And that was probably about five years ago. And I quickly saw that, one, she had an aptitude for photography, but two, she had uh, she is an incredible entomologist, really into bugs, probably more than anything. And so it was a perfect fit for this book. And we've become friends since. She is a, she is a naturalist. She works for the uh, Crawford Park System. Okay. Now, in the introduction of the book, you write about the different ways that gardeners decide how they want to design their gardens or what plants that they want to grow. And you mentioned that sometimes we can be pretty selfish in how we make these decisions. So could you dig into that idea a little bit more for us here? What did you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. In the introduction of the book, Chelsea and I both have a section where we just basically talk about ourselves, all right? So, and you're about the eighth one to point this out, so I must have struck a chord here, but in my little account about myself, I talked about all the garden lectures I've given, many of which are in more traditional gardening circles, you know, so some of my co-speakers are traditional gardeners, and I've just heard 
variations of your garden is all about you. It's all about you. Do what makes you feel good ad nauseum too many times. So I couldn't resist just taking a little dig at that and uh, basically point out that we've laid waste all this natural habitat. The very gardens that they're talking about have displaced uh, scores of native species. And maybe we should think more about giving back to the natural world what we've already taken. And a garden is a good place to do that. And I hope I was somewhat tactful about how I said it, but uh, that that's what you're referring to. Yeah, I thought it was really well said. And I think maybe the reason it, it struck a chord with me and these other interviewers that you mentioned is, you know, I've heard that so many times as well. Grow what you love. You know, it's such a common thing to hear at a garden conference. Um, and your take on it was just really interesting. So I wanted to ask about it for sure. Well, good. It, it, with, with people like you, Bevan, it did resonate. And that's who I've tended to hear it from, because to, to me, that's a uh, I'm not judging anyone. If people want to make their gardens like that, great, more power to them. But to me, it's a very one dimensional way of looking at ecoscaping or landscaping uh, when you completely ignore the animal community, which is what these plants really drive. So I prefer a three-dimensional garden with um, interesting insects and birds and things like that. It's more of a big picture approach. A big picture, exactly. And, you know, like Doug Tallamy's really helped people understand if lots of us did this, it would, would make profound differences. Absolutely. Now, I got to be honest with you, Jim, in the world of insects, I'm a complete novice. So could you break it down for me and tell me what is the difference between a moth and a butterfly? Yeah, uh, I would recommend a good resource for that for your viewers or listeners. And that's my book <laughs> to be uh, blatantly self-plugging it. But we have a section right up front that uh, defines that. But there isn't a lot of difference, to be honest with you. So this is the order Lepidoptera. It's one of the largest insect orders on on planet Earth. Uh, beetles uh, beat it. Beetles are the biggest. But it's, it's a, a massive group of insects. And it's divided into moths and butterflies. And in the frontispiece of the book, we have a quote, and it's from an entomologist, and it says, the bottom line is all butterflies are moths, and there's no such thing as butterflies. So there are some good differences, but they there's exceptions galore. One, the biggest one are moths generally fly at night, and butterflies, around here at least, they all fly during the day. So the nocturnal diurnal thing's a big one, but there's differences in the body shape, the uh, degree of hairiness of the body, the antennae that are pretty consistent with them. So after a while of looking at them, it's pretty easy to tell you're looking at a moth as opposed to a butterfly. Yeah, so I wanted to come back to that quote. I have that in my notes here, too. Um, and I'm going to say it again. The bottom line is... All butterflies are moths and there's no such thing as butterflies. I just that's such a thought provoking statement that I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it. Um, what does he mean? There's no such thing as butterflies. What he means is butterflies are essentially moths. Genetically, there is really no real difference here. So the order Lepidoptera arose with the uh, onset of flowering plants, you know, so we're going way, way back epochs ago. And the moths arose much, much earlier. That lineage is the ancestral lineage of the Lepidoptera. The butterflies uh, started diverging from that much, much, much later. So the moths have been around far, far longer, and they're far, far more speciose. So like where you live in your part of the world or here, um, there's probably 30 times the number of species of moths as opposed to butterflies. So basically what 
uh, Kiro was saying in that quote is that uh, they're just they're just a little segment of moths. They're basically day flying moths, and, and that's very true. I got it. Okay, cool. Now, one of the things about this book that really struck me, of course, is the photography. As I'm flipping through every page, I'm just like, wow. I mean, it's incredible images that you've captured, and I just kept thinking, how is this even possible? So, how are you able to find all of these different moths and get them to essentially just pose for what's incredible photos? Uh, a lot of time, for one, I've been doing this for a long time. Chelsea more recently, but she's got a lot, a lot of nocturnal hours. So we're luring the moths into moss sheets for many of those shots. And after a while, you learn a little tricks of the trade as to how you re- can, can relocate them off these brightly lit sheets, which is not a great photo substrate, and put them on more natural uh, wigs, branches, things like that. And then the caterpillars, that's that's very much of a nocturnal activity because they mostly emerge under cover of darkness as well. And there's tricks to finding those. And once you get good at it, it's possible to go out on a good night and just find scores of subjects. So it's basically all that. It's a lot of nocturnal work and a lot of sort of familiarity with the subject and how you might manipulate them for photos. Could you explain it for, well, for me and for the listeners a little bit more about what the moth sheet is that you use to draw them in? Yeah. And we, again, we have a section in the book about that that describes good ways to observe moths. But in general, you take a white substrate. I use my white shed wall in my backyard, but a lot of people will just hang sheets and then white sheets and then light them up. And the best lights are mercury mercury vapor lights and then a black light. So those are in two different frequencies. The mercury vapor lights are bright. They really, really draw in things. The black light is a much softer, colder frequency, I guess you'd call it. And it, it brings in a different set of moths. And then if you really want to be thorough, there's some moths that aren't attracted to lights, like the zowies and baked trees. You take a viscous glop of old beer, stale beer and brown sugar and rotten bananas, something like that. Mix it all up and just plaster it on a tree trunk. And then other things will come to that. And between those things, you'll you'll get most of what's out there probably. Wow, that's, that's wild. How many different moths are photographed in the book? Oh, gosh. Good question. There's over 600 photos in the book. We profile almost 150 species alone, but there's many, many others mentioned in there and have photos. I would say uh, 200 species of moss species are probably photographed in that book. That's amazing. Now, the book, it's a regional guide, I guess, and that's the full title, Gardening for Moss, a regional guide. So the information in the book is geared towards gardeners in which particular areas? Yeah, uh, eight states or parts there of range map in the beginning, but uh, one of the biggest mistakes, in my opinion, an author can make with a book like this is assigning it to a, a state because, you know, state boundaries are political. They have nothing to do with nature. It's better to look at uh, plant communities, at least for a book like this. So it goes all the way to Illinois, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and almost all of West Virginia are completely included. And then southern Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, western PA, Pennsylvania, and western New York. So even though, you know, outside of that region, I Obviously, the plants are going to be different and therefore the insects are going to be different. Do you think that there's some information in this book that would be valuable to people outside of the region, too? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, let's just say that we'll take a political boundary here in the United States. There's really one huge eco region that has a huge impact on things, too, if you want to be very simplistic. And But the one I'm speaking of is the eastern deciduous forest region that blanketed the almost the entire eastern U.S. from about the Mississippi River onto the Atlantic coast into southern Canada and down into Florida. Uh, and that's that anywhere in that region, yes, you would see a lot of these things because they their ranges 
cover much of that. One of the many things, and I say many things because I loved this book. I loved so much about it. But the quick reference guide to the host plants that's included back in the, the resources near the back of the book. I was just amazed to see how many different species of moths rely on what I would just consider, you know, like common native plants, like things like goldenrod or black eyed Susan. Yeah. Do you hope that this book will encourage more people to grow n- more native plants in their gardens? Absolutely. That's really what it's all about. Distilled down to a big picture. It's it's to encourage conservation and do so by native uh planting native plants. So yes. And thank you for that comment. I'm going to pass that on to Chelsea because that was her idea. And she did that particular section. It was a ton of work. And you're about the ninth person that's come up to me to compliment that section. So that's very good to know. But it is, it's, it's revealing. And you brought up a really good point. And I just want to mention this briefly. So uh, humans are, have a real postage stamp uh, mentality in general. We like rare things, rare postage stamps, you know, and that's true with plants too. I'm in the botanical crowd. We love rare plants. Sure. What's doing the real heavy lifting out there are the tall goldenrods and, and white oaks and common species. They're producing more animal biomass than anything by a long shot. And I think sometimes that gets overlooked because we're just so smitten with these rare things. Uh, and there are some rare things in the book, but not many. Mostly it's stuff that you can get your hands on, commonly sold, uh, or at least it can be found. There's a couple that aren't, but we say that, you know, and I do that because I want them to get out on the radar screen. One of the things that I liked that you mentioned in the book was how when we think of moths, we tend to have these stereotypes where we think, you know, moths eat our clothing or gypsy moths or whatever it might be, but that that's just such a small fraction of the reality of what moths are doing out there. And obviously getting people to garden for moths is the premise of the book. But could you tell the listeners just briefly, why do they want to consider designing their gardens with moths in mind? Like what's the benefit for us to do that? Food. It's all about food. So to just thank you for saying that too. And by the way, we have a, we had a lot of fun with it. We have a section up front in the book that talks about their bad reputations from Mothman in West Virginia, bringing down the Silver Bridge over the Ohio River uh, to Godzilla battles Mothra and the Japanese sci-fi. You never see butterflies cast in these roles. Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins, the Death's Head's Hawk Moth was a totem for that with a skull on the back of it. No butterflies are ever cast in, in villainous roles like this. Moss, it's really common. There's even biblical passages uh, that refer to moss as vermin and this sort of thing. Um, so they needed some good PR and hopefully we gave them that. <laughs> but the reason high productivity moth plants are important is because uh, they have a, a perfect metamorphosis, a four-part life cycle, just like butterflies. And a really critical part of that is the caterpillar stage, the larvae. And the larvae are basically nature's hot dogs. Everyone eats them. They're the just the best source of little neatly wrapped protein that there is. And it's so important that if we didn't have moth caterpillars, because they're way outnumbering butterfly caterpillars, they're far more important if you want to look at it that way. Uh, our, many of our songbirds would go extinct. Uh, the red-eyed vireo is a good case in point. In the region of the book, the red-eyed vireo is a neotropical songbird that winters in South America, way down there, and invades in epic numbers every year to exploit the seasonal bounty of moth caterpillars. And probably 80% of a vireo's diet, if not more, is caterpillars. So you've got this tremendous exchange of energy that's fascinating uh, where caterpillars are taking plants, you know, and converting them into an edible source of uh, food for higher animals like birds. And it's a very seasonal thing up in this part of the world. As you know, everything goes dormant in winter. So it's all about feeding food chain, if you will. So it may not be a, a direct benefit to the garden 
partner. But again, we're going to come back to that big picture idea of we're benefiting everybody and everything by supporting this moth population. Exactly, exactly. And it will benefit gardeners too, at least if they're uh, astute observers in your own garden. Uh, you, you've seen some of those photos. Some of these cat- caterpillars are little tubular works of art. They're incredible. And that's actually what gets a fair number of people involved in this because not a moth, they see a caterpillar and it's so outlandish. They're like, what in the world is this? And it sparks this interest. Uh, and if you're around your plants enough, you're going to see them. And if you've got a lot of the 150 species wheat profile of plants in our book, uh, you will get these things. And ditto the moths, you know, they'll t- you'll see them eventually, you know, especially if you put a light out and attract them at night. And they're quite amazing too. So the, the uh, gardener can't observe these things. But yeah, it's a bigger picture, you know, of uh, uh, kind of the antithesis of what we started this with, my comments about traditional gardening, you know, it's where it's good to think about, even if you can't see it all the time, you know it's out there doing things because of your activities in your own yard. And that should be a good reward or justification for doing it, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that that's pretty cool too. So I want to come back real quick to what we were saying about how moths get the bad rap. And you had a lot of great examples throughout history of moths being villainized in a way. Um, Why do you think that is? Is it maybe because they come out at night or what is it about the moth that made it so easy for everyone to villainize it like that? Or fear of the dark, just in a nutshell. Humans have an inherent fear of the dark, uh, probably with some reason that long predates the current crop of Homo sapiens. And uh, when Edison invented the light bulb, I mean, it, it revolutionized the world. Now we could throw light on all this stuff that used to scare us to death because we couldn't see it well. And there were some dangerous things out there. Uh, so I, I think a lot of it's got to do with that nocturnal behavior, the vast majority of it. Otherwise, we would see it with butterflies. Yet no one, no one is villainizing butterflies because they're out during the day. And it's that nocturnal thing, I think. Very interesting. This has been fantastic, Jim. So where can folks find you online and get their copy of Gardening for Moths? Uh, Gardening them up for moths is really easy to find. Just go to Amazon.com. Uh, is, uh, of course, one easy way. They can be ordered directly through our, our press, and that's Ohio University Press. And then a lot of booksellers have it, too. I couldn't name them all, but I know that a lot of the big chains in the region covered by the book have it now. So it's easy to find. Uh, if you want to learn more about my work in photography, I have a blog. It's called Ohio Birds and Biodiversity. All right, folks, you heard it here. Uh, Gardening for Moths is now available on Amazon and everywhere the books are sold. I'm going to put all those links down in the show notes. Jim McCormick, thank you again, my friend, for being on the show with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Bevan. And that brings us to the end of another show, my friends. Thanks again for being here with us. And remember, you can always support our podcast by subscribing to our Patreon. You can find that link and many more at seedsandweedspodcast.com as well as in the show notes. Big thanks to Jim McCormick for joining us on this very special bonus episode. The music we're listening to right now is called Catch It by Coma Media. I'm Bevan Cohen, and we'll see you next time. Howdy, friends. Bevan here. You know, the Seeds and Weeds podcast is made possible in part by Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company, rareseeds.com. They're America's top source for rare and heirloom varieties from around the world, and they're publisher of the Whole Seed Catalog. Their 2024 catalog is chocked full of heirloom goodness, new varieties, recipes, stories, and gorgeous photographs. You can order yours now at rareseeds.com.